Welcome to the Tailored Life Podcast, the one and only fitness and nutrition podcast that goes way beyond just training and nutrition. I'm your host, Cody McBroom, and with me is my co-host, Travis McQueen. And today, we got a Q&A. We got a lot of good questions today, so spanning from all over the place. Remember, guys, you can ask us your questions uh, in multiple places. Obviously, I'm always on Instagram, so you can ask me there. But the best places to ask are in the form, which you can find in the description of this podcast by just clicking the Ask Boom Boom link. Or you can be in the Facebook group because we post every Tuesday and we get your questions. So make sure you add yourself into, I believe it's just the Tailored Life group, the private forum. Tailored Life podcast forum. Podcast forum. Link for that is in the description as well. And it's a free group, so you can join. You can ask questions. You can get your uh, dibs on the first questions to be answered on the podcast. Um, And it's just a free community to be in as long as you can answer a few questions. Um, Which, that reminds me, dude. Seinfeld is finally on Netflix. Oh, I thought you were going to say there's a new season or something. Yeah, no. Um, And it was hilarious. Dude, so get this. like, And I'm not going to go down this rabbit hole, I promise. But it's just hilarious to me. Um, So there's there's an episode of Seinfeld about uh, shrinkage. Hmm. Have you heard of this episode? No. So long story Maybe. short, they're at like a beach house and Jerry and George both bring their girlfriends to the house and George hasn't like slept with his girlfriend yet. Like, so they're like new couple and uh, haven't seen each other or anything. And he goes swimming in the pool and the pool is cold. And then she walks in on, or Jerry's girlfriend walks in on him changing and sees him naked. And then he starts freaking out cause she's going to talk to his girlfriend and he keeps saying like the pool was cold. There was shrinkage. And, like, the whole thing is the girls are like, what's shrinkage mean? Like, uh, clothes and washer, and guys are like, you know, when you go into cold water, yep. shrinkage. Well, Netflix censored shrinkage. What? Yeah, they took parts of the episode out, and they censored shrinkage, because apparently shrinkage is inappropriate or something. Oh, my God. Shrinkage. It's not, what? I don't know. That's, like. That's weird. That's <laughs> super weird. <laughs> Why is an eggplant emoji okay, and, and shrinkage is not? Oh, yeah, that's not shrinkage. No, that's not. But still, we know yeah. what that represents yeah. when somebody sends it to you. Yeah. I was fucking cracking up. I was yeah. like, that is just, that's crazy. It's crazy that you knew that they took it out. Well, I no, like, I didn't know because I haven't watched that episode on uh, Netflix yet. But because we started rewatching everything um, and we left off at, at season five. And so we're jumping to season six. We haven't seen that episode yet on Netflix, but um, Seinfeld fans are like pissed. So there's like things on social media and stuff. Oh. And, like Seinfeld fans all pissed. Oh. Like, they're censoring. That's Seinfeld how you found out about it? Yeah. Oh. Yeah. Which I, I'm pretty sure Jerry's actually a, uh, a comedian who doesn't curse. Hmm. Like I, I've never heard him curse. And there's an episode that he finally does curse. And then this little kid was watching and won't stop saying fuck and his mom's pissed and like comes to Jerry like it's actually really funny wow um but yeah I thought I was cracking up damn shrinkage weird but um it's, very, it's finally very uh, odd your opportunity to catch up on Seinfeld man cool your dad wants you to <laughs> I want you to it's a great show I just don't have no interest I know you don't man but I think I'll, I'll finish the Kevin Hart documentary if you watch it all right prove it <laughs> it's been a year <laughs> I did watch Dude, it's not been a year. You were living in the Fife House, I think, when I told you. No. Fife House was 2017, bro. No. Four years ago. No, we lived together in 2017. Yeah, I know. And I, I, when, I, when I quit Vigor, it was 2017. I quit Vigor went, when I moved and in And went there. to Edgewood and then mm-hmm. went to Fife. So it was probably 2019. Either way. 2018, probably. Okay. Because the only reason I know that is because I got the uh, Bonnie Lake House in 19 early 2019 yeah because yeah, we put our we we got the lot 
2018, December 31st, but we didn't yeah. move in right yeah. away because we had to build it. So, yeah. But still, that's – I don't think it was that long ago. Might have been 18. I think it was only a year ago. Okay. Because the Kevin Hart documentary is not that old. It's good. but I, th- I think time flies, man. I don't think you're – It does fly. Yeah, it does fly. All right, let's get into these questions today. We got lots of them. So, we're going to start with Caroline. Says I'm 42 years old, mom of four kids, three of which are teenagers. I have a lot of outside stress stressors that I really can't control, but I think that I handle them pretty well. Currently, four days of lifting on an upper lower split. I walk the canyon two to three days for 45 minutes, and I ride my Peloton one to two days for 20 to 30 minutes. What is the best lifting split for a female my age, and how much and what should I do for cardio? So, what is the best lifting split for a female my age, and how much, and when should I do cardio? Right. Um, so, basically, break down what I would have her do. Yeah. Right? Um, and uh, the the thing I would say is... Hold on. Okay. I haven't seen you click it on, oh, that's yeah. what I was asking. So, basically, what would I have her do in a training and cardio scenario? I mean, first and foremost, she's doing a ton of cardio. I mean... Walking the canyon for 45 minutes, which she said two to three times a day, a week. Yep. Not a day. And riding her Peloton one to two times a week. Correct. And strength training four times a week. That's a well, lot. Isn't that, I'd, I would assume she'd not ride in the Peloton the same day she'd walk in the canyon. I mean, who knows? At that point, that's more activities than the days in the week. True. Four lifting days, two to three canyon days. So that's, you know, six to seven days. And then plus one to two yep. Peloton. Not, that could be anywhere between eight to nine days a week. Seven nine. to nine. So she's doing something every day, if not overlapping. True. Um, I mean, shit, that's a lot. And I would also say, I mean, so this is this is kind of one of those questions where I actually think what you're asking me is, are am I doing too much? Mm-hmm. You didn't give me your goal. You didn't tell me what you're after. Um, so I don't know what the purpose behind it all is. You know. So I would say this: like, typically, if somebody has a, like most people listen to this podcast are coming to us fat loss or muscle growth goal. They want to change the way they look, body composition. Um, that's a lot. There's just no reason to do that much activity. I would rather tweak uh, nutrition, do as much as needed, but not too much when it comes to training and cardio, and then just manage stress and sleep and things like that. Um, the fact that you're, you have a, a higher stress lifestyle and you have that many kids, you probably don't get seven to eight hours of sleep a night, you know, but your kids are a little bit older, so maybe you do. Most parents are like seven hours max. Um, so I would just say, I would probably say you're doing a little too much to be honest with you. I think it's unnecessary. Now here's the caveat. There's, I have clients that do just as much and I don't take away that cardio because they enjoy it. So I want you strength training four days a week. Right. And then I would say two days of conditioning. That's like the perfect split for damn near anybody. So every single person I could think of that I would work with, that is between the age of 25 to 60, who has the goal of getting leaner, losing fat, being healthier, you know, performing well, whatever, but they don't have serious like powerlifting goals. They don't have uh, serious bodybuilding goals. They don't want to get muscular or anything like that. Four days a week of, of training and lifting is ideal. Three at least, four, any more than that is unnecessary. So three to four, and then uh, two to three days of conditioning. So you're basically doing a- active activities, a- active sessions six days a week, and you're alternating between strength training and uh, cardiovascular style stuff. So for you, you could do four days of lifting, one day of the canyon, one day of Peloton. You'd be fine. Now, if you're like, I really enjoy getting away in the morning and walking in the canyon a couple days a week, then keep doing it. Do two days. I don't care. You just have to eat more food to support that and make sure you get enough sleep, support that recovery. Um, The caveat is if your goal is fat loss, 
you probably can't eat more food because then you take yourself out of a deficit. But if you're already doing that much activity and you're already consuming a decently low calorie deficit trying to lose weight, you're throwing so many things in the pot that you're adapting to pretty easily. Now we're going to have to dig the calories pretty low. So mm. I mean, this is kind of a can of worms. There's a lot of ways I could go with this because it's very generic. There's not much information as far as what you're after. Um, but if I had to, uh, like 75% of people, I think do really well with four days a week of lifting, uh, two days a week of conditioning, combination of high and low intensity on those days. Um, most likely low intensity is better, more aerobic style for most people, even though it's more boring and not as commonly used, it's, it's probably going to be more advantageous. Um, but that's ideal. Now, the only time I change that is like somebody wants to be a power lifter. We might tweak that a little bit. Somebody has like serious bodybuilding aspirations or they want to put on muscle or size. I'm probably going to push you to do five or six days a week of lifting because we need more volume. So you got to lift more. You mm -hmm. got to build muscle, you know? Um, but yeah, I think you're in a good place. I think you're just doing a little too much cardio. Totally. So, yeah. Cool. All right. Let's go to the next one. We have one from Carrie. says, I lost 97 pounds. And still have about 50 more to go. Over the last year, I've gained back 15 pounds, and I'm struggling to get back into a deficit. How much of a deficit do I need to be in? And if calorie deficit is how you lose weight, what happens when you keep lowering calories? Um, that's a loaded question. All right. So she lost 50 pounds. 97. 97 pounds. She has 15 to go, she said? 50. 50 to go. Yeah. Okay. Okay. That's where I got 50. Okay. Lost 97 pounds. First and foremost, well done. That's an wow. appreciable amount of weight. Um, that's, that's really cool. Uh, okay. And you have 50 pounds to lose. You've already created deficit. Now you're looking to create a bigger deficit essentially. Yep. And you're just asking like, when does it end? Right. Cause you're yeah, running out of calories. How much, how much of deficit do I need to be in? And if calorie deficit, how, what happens when you keep lowering calories? Yeah, this is where periodization comes into play, right? So, like, the the truth is, is when you have a lot of weight to lose, you can get much further on a calorie deficit without making adjustments. For example, when you dropped that 97 pounds, I don't know if you were tracking calories or macros, but let's, you know, use an example of somebody I have worked with that has lost between 50 to 100 pounds. That's a good amount of weight to lose. When we create a calorie deficit using calories and macros, we might set their baseline goal of blank calories, blank macros. We can typically ride that for six plus months. I've had people literally, I make their first initial adjustment to like, okay, we're going into a deficit now and we stay there for months and months and months on and they keep losing weight because they have a lot of weight to lose. Therefore, that deficit's going to work for them much longer. We're just focusing on health, stress management, consistency, training, stuff like that. Um, you're going to keep losing weight for a long time. Now, somebody who has 20 to 50 pounds to lose, a much a smaller amount, we're probably going to ride that initial adjustment a little bit, like a good amount of time, but we're going to make adjustments to that sooner. We're going to have to push that deficit deeper sooner than we would the person who has 100 pounds to lose. Somebody who has 10 to 20 pounds to lose, we're going to make the initial adjustment. And then within three to four weeks, we might be making another adjustment. So the, the less weight you have to lose, the more likely you are to make adjustments along the way. And the reason I say this is because you said, aren't you going to run out of calories eventually? Well, if we look at it from a, a generic or a very uh, cookie cutter approach of you have to adjust your calories every two to four weeks, let's just say as a rule of thumb, which isn't a bad rule of thumb. But if we consider that for everybody, somebody who has to lose 100 pounds, they might have to lose weight for two years before they get to their goal weight. If they adjust their calories every two to four weeks, they will definitely be eating literally nothing eventually, yeah. right? 
which is why this isn't the case. They may make an adjustment and then not make one for another six months and then make one more for another five months and then another one after three months. Now they've made the same amount of adjustments in two years that somebody who had to lose 20 pounds lost or, or made in two to three months, mm-hmm. right? So it really depends. Um, your body, your, you will adapt. So this is what happens when you keep lowering calories. Uh, metabolic adaptation occurs. So um, we'll put a link to my blog on reverse dieting because I touch on metabolic adaptation in this. The, the blog is called Reverse Dieting 101. And I talk about metabolic adaptation, but when we go into a calorie deficit, what happens is our body starts to adapt by downregulating our metabolism. And our metabolism controls a lot of um, growth, properties, growth, cell regeneration processes and systems in the body, hormonal things. So um, it, the thyroid keeps working, the metabolism keeps working, hair keeps growing, skin keeps growing or reproducing or whatever it yeah. does, um, nails, you're obviously burning energy expenditure, digestion, like all these things are factored in the metabolism. And we have, you know, your, your total daily energy expenditure is broken into BMR, your basal metabolic rate, which is just what it takes to survive, which is hair growth, digestion, those kind of things. Actually, not even digestion, hair growth, um, just general signals and, and processes in the body. Then we have TEF, thermic effect food, that's digestion. Then we have, um, uh, what would be... It's, I think it's eat, exercise, activity, thermogenesis, I think mm. is what technical call. Usually we just say activity, but the, the calories you burn through activity. But point being, we have these different things that lead to your total daily calorie expenditure or your maintenance caloric intake. And when we lower our calories, all those things kind of slow down. Mm. So neat, non-exercise, activity, thermogenesis, that drops a little bit. TEF, thermic effect food. Technically, that drops a little bit because we're eating less food. We're in a deficit. So we don't burn as many calories through digestion, which is another reason why eating higher fiber foods, higher protein, uh, having a higher protein diet, and trying to have more voluminous foods. So having like a big-ass salad with tons of lettuce, like a lot of low-calorie foods that create a lot of bulk and volume in your meal are good because then you keep that TEF higher when your calories get lower. It's one of the ways to try to mitigate metabolic adaptation. Just tracking your step count. So if you're doing 10,000 steps a day, you go into a deficit, keep walking 10,000 steps a day. Don't try to necessarily increase it until you hit a plateau, but try to just maintain it because the first thing your body's going to do is take that 10,000 and make it 8,000 because it's compensating, um, which is why paying attention to data is important. Another reason why intuitive eating doesn't work. You start intuitive eating, even if you accomplish a deficit, all these things downregulate, but if you're being so intuitive that you're trying to avoid tracking anything, you can't even determine if they actually downregulated, you know, so paying attention to all these things and make sure we're maintaining them. That's the biggest key. So what happens when we keep lowering calories is all these things downregulate. And it's our job to try to try to mitigate that by keeping as many of them elevated as we possibly can. Food, we can semi-control. Activity in the gym, we can semi-control. We can't completely control strength losses and deficit, but you can try to keep pushing yourself. You can have some caffeine pre-workout, make sure you get good sleep so you have energy in the gym, time your nutrients properly. You can keep your step count up. Um, things like fidgeting, hair growth, like you can't, there's nothing you can do about those things, right? Menstrual cycle, that takes a lot of energy for women. Nothing you can do about that if that slows down. Um, but that's essentially what happens. And you're never going to completely run out of calories because this is where like starvation mode is not really a thing. Um, you will likely, your body will push you into binging and eating a lot of food before you get to that point. Pretty much. Right? Totally. Your body's not going to let you literally starve and start like falling apart. Um, so the best thing to do is periodize it. So knowing 
I have this long to get to my goal. I'm going to try to reach that goal and then bring my calories up through a reverse diet, slowly bring them back up. I'm going to implement more neat. I'm going to implement something to push me in the gym. I'm going to get better sleep. Do these things so that you can make the most out of your calorie deficit so that you can avoid making an adjustment sooner. Because if you make an adjustment today, but you keep all those things in check, you're going to be able to ride that deficit adjustment you just made for many weeks longer than you would if you weren't paying attention to those things because after a few weeks, it stops working for you. Now you have to drop your calories lower. Yeah. But what's probably be the most intelligent thing to do is to diet for a while. And then once you start noticing things slow down, noticing that the calorie deficit's not working as well for you and noticing that, or just being aware of if you go lower with your calories, you know, you won't adhere to it. Cause that's the biggest factor. You'll lose weight if you drop your calories, but whether or not you can actually sustain it is another question. If you know, you can't adhere to it properly when you just further at that point, take a diet break, reverse that up, pull back get out of the deficit for a little bit and then come back to it months down the road. Totally. Like that would be the best long-term approach. Yeah. So cool. Um, there you go, Carrie. All right, cool. We've got one from Alex Williams it says I've been struggling with confidence in myself and the result has affected my training and my coaching. I feel like I'm not confident in things that I have learned. What are some ways to build that confidence in myself? I think there's, there's a few more like logical things and there's some like uh, kind of foo-foo, spiritual, emotional things that you can do as well. Um, number one, and this is where like I think people can kind of look at this as like silly, like speaking things into the universe and um, self-affirmations and stuff like that, which they can be kind of silly. I mean, like, let's be honest, you're not going to just say something and it comes becomes real. But what I would say is that if you don't value yourself enough, if you don't value and appreciate your own knowledge base, you're not going to believe in yourself to produce a result in yourself or your clients. So you becoming a great coach kind of becomes something impossible in your own mind. It becomes something that isn't realistic to you to kind of conceptualize or think about. And therefore, I think you're going to struggle to act upon it. You're not going to be confident in what you do if you don't believe it yourself, period. So number one is is telling yourself, writing down a journal, speaking it into the universe, quote unquote, looking in the mirror, whatever you got to do, telling yourself that you're valuable, your your time is is worth something, that your knowledge is worth something, that you're capable of learning more and becoming better. Um, and yeah, just, just kind of ta- honestly talking yourself up building your own self-confidence. I mean, we've we've talked a lot about self-doubt and self-belief on the Monday Motivation Podcast, so go listen to those. But really, it comes down to just journaling, meditating, self-affirmations, things like that, because you're always going to be your worst critic, and you're going to run into people like if, granted, if you've never read a book on training, you have no reason to be confident because you don't know anything. But I highly doubt that's the case if you're asking this question. So if you're doing the work from a learning perspective, you're going to the gym, you're training clients, you're spending time investing in education stuff, the only thing stopping you from believing you are worth money or time as a coach is yourself. And there's probably people around you who believe in you. There's probably clients that believe in you. And it's just, it's a, it's a lack of confidence with yourself. So therefore you have to attack it yourself. Read books on this stuff. Read Ego is the Enemy, Obstacle is the Way, um, The Big Leap, uh, Loving What Is, like books that talk about self-confidence and self-belief and reassure yourself that you are worth it. And I think it'll it'll come more true because I think at the end of the day, people who really, people who value themselves, value their own time, value their own information, end up kind of feeding that onto people. People feel that, and then people end up valuing 
your time and your energy and your knowledge and your information more because they feel how much you value it yourself, right? It, it's, it comes off of you. It's your energy. So that's number one. Number two is learning and executing. So if you're not spending every single day trying to read something new on training, if you're not spending every month diving through a course, diving through a workshop, attending seminars, if you're not investing money and time into education constantly, then I do think you're dropping the ball on a big piece of what makes great trainers great. Great trainers constantly want to learn and constantly want to do better, constantly want to educate themselves more, and they're constantly investing in further education, right? Um, I mean, the amount that we invest in that is kind of ridiculous. So it's, it's, it's a common between all great coaches. So I think you should be doing that if you're not. And once you start doing that, take action. Take what you're learning, create content on it. Write Facebook posts, Instagram posts, newsletters, blogs. Um, go on medium.com if you don't have a website. Write blogs for them. It's free. You can sign up an account and just do it and it goes out to the, the, the world, you know, the world wide web. <laughs> um, but it gets you writing, you know, and uh, use it on people. Take action. Help people in your DMs. Help people that you know through text messages. Coach fucking people. You know, just put it to work. And it's just a time game. I don't think anybody starts anything with confidence. You know what I mean? You kind of get into it and you're, I mean, you're worried, you're scared, Ex- you're nervous. Experience equals confidence. 100%. At least. And which means, I initiates. think, I think, how, how would I say this? I think that, because I agree with that statement, but I also think you kind of have to have a level of confidence to take action in the beginning. Uh, I would say belief. Minimal. Belief. Yeah. Self-belief leads to taking action. Once you take action, it's just about riding it out and having experience. Once you have experience, then you develop confidence. Everybody has doubts in the beginning. You know, I think the biggest thing for me for a long time was my age. I was always the youngest trainer in the room. Every seminar I went to, every, the gym I worked at, every circle I was in, everything, every podcast I did, everything. I was always the youngest. And still today, I'm still younger than a lot of people, but I've been in the game long enough to where I don't, that doesn't bug me anymore. But that was a big insecurity of mine, which shouldn't have mattered because a lot of people are like, damn, I wish I would have started at your age. Mm-hmm. Some of the people I've been doing it just as long. They were just 10 years older than me. They yep. started later. But that was a story in my head because of my age meant that I was less experienced. Nothing to do with it whatsoever. So a lot of it is just in your own head, man. Um, I just think you just got to gotta kick the shit and get to work. Yeah, totally. You know? There's not a good hack or anything to do. It's just really action. Yeah, t- yeah. talking yourself up personally and then taking action on it. I want to take a brief moment to interrupt this podcast and shout out our sponsor, Legion Athletics, the world's number one best-selling brand of all natural sports supplements. Guys, if you're listening to this, you probably take supplements. I'm assuming you take a whey protein. You probably have some pre-workout. If you're really focused on health, you might take a, a multivitamin, a greens drink, a fish oil, whatever it is. Legion probably has it. And they are going to be using science-backed ingredients. Everything is actually dosed effectively and clinically proven. Everything is naturally sweetened and flavored. Everything is lab tested, made in the U.S., and you're going to get a money-back guarantee. So the reason I'm bringing this up is not only because they're a podcast sponsor, but I truly value the team at Legion, and I truly value what they are doing in the supplement space. And one of the things that is really frustrating for a lot of people that come to us is trying to find a brand where they can actually get quality supplements and they can trust the result that's going to come from them. Most people just search Amazon for the best result they can find, and they trust Amazon reviewers. And don't get me wrong. If something has a lot of stars and good reviews, that's awesome. But you can also pay people to leave reviews. So go with a company that you can trust that is backed up not only by science and actual researchers in the lab doing things, but coaches like myself who have tons of experience and use the stuff on a regular basis. 
So guys, stop wasting money. Stop searching and searching and searching for the best product out there and just jump on Legion Athletics. They are the best and I promise you that. You can head over to buylegion.com slash boom boom and save 20% on your first order and start earning points so you can get kickbacks on future orders and eventually free products. So one more time, that's buylegion.com slash boom boom. Without any further ado, let's get back into the podcast. All right, let's uh, move on to the next one. It's from Lindsay. It says, I am curious about adding salt to water. I have heard doing this this is beneficial, but would love to hear more of the reason why and when, such as during a workout, it is beneficial. Yeah. First and foremost, you don't have to – I mean, there's no special – I mean, there's definitely a special relationship between salt and water, which I'll get into in a sec, but you don't need to like, I I don't want people to hear what I'm about to say and go, oh, I got to like drink a glass of salt water before I work out because that's fucking disgusting. (laughs) Um, What's it? Isn't there like a, I don't know if you did this when you were a kid, but when you're sick, there's some reason that you would gargle salt water. Yeah. Like a sore throat. Is that like a wise old wives tale probably? No, I think like salt helps like heal your vocal cords and- Okay, well, there you go. I remember gargling salt water when I was a kid. Yeah, me too. Um, so you don't need to do that. You can just put salt on your meals and, and do it that way. Or what I used to do is literally take a quarter of a teaspoon of like sea salt and just throw it back and then just yep. chug water so I just washed it right down instead of drinking salt water. Um, or you can do what I do now, and it's like you can get a supplement version of it. Like uh, I like Rob Wolf's supplement the best. It's LMNT, which is like element, but it's uh, it's just literally – sodium potassium magnesium it's like a salt packet with yeah. flavor so it doesn't taste like shit but it definitely tastes salty and then i put it in my intro workout um so salt in general sodium to be like the more uh elemental uh term for it is number one it's it's a mandatory nutrient for function in life we need it um there's a lot of reasons why it's beneficial for training but it's also beneficial for many other things one of the things is your brain if you're dehydrated in general, you don't have enough hydration in your body, you're going to have more headaches, you're going to have um, uh, lethargy, you're going to have muscle cramps, you're not going to have enough actual hydration to certain areas of your body depending on where you deplete it first. Sodium is going to help store that water. So sodium, this is why people, when they have a lot of salt, they retain water. It's not necessarily a bad thing. We see fluctuations in this because the body is very sensitive to sodium. So if I have uh, 1,000 extra milligrams of sodium one day, the next day I'm going to be a couple pounds heavier. But if I kept eating a thousand extra milligrams every single day, my body would regulate that. It would drop the weight and I would just level out because my body would get accustomed to that sodium level pretty quickly. Yeah. Um, but the reason we need that is because salt helps store sodium in the places we need it most. Um, one of those places is the muscle. So we store water. The muscle is about 65% water. Uh, if we have enough salt in our diet, we're actually going to be more efficient about storing water in the muscle. And if the muscle is 65% water, I'd I'd go out to venture and say that you're probably going to look and be more jacked if you have more water in the muscle because most of your muscle is water. On top of that, if your muscle is hydrated, it can perform better because it has less cramping and it can recover quicker, which means you're probably going to build new muscle tissues, which can store more water later on, which means that your salt's going to pull more water to new muscle tissues. And it's like this cycle, right? So quite literally, if you want to build muscle, you can't ignore salt. 
Uh, there's also a neurological component. So when we consider mental clarity, focus, um, and even skill acquisition, they show that when you're dehydrated and depleted of sodium, specifically depleted of sodium, your ability to learn new skills or tasks actually drops pretty significantly. Mm. Um, it's actually very ironic that she asked this question because I'm putting together that Brazilian Jiu-Jitsu nutrition presentation and I'm like, I have a whole slide going into sodium. Um, but one of the things is that, so like, the reason I was emphasizing that specific thing with Brazilian Jiu-Jitsu is because if we're considering a diet for a mixed martial artist throughout the year, like we need something that's going to allow us to learn new skills, right? Because quite literally the way you get better at Brazilian Jiu-Jitsu, yes, you have to be stronger. You have to have better conditioning, but you also have to learn technique and new skills. That's the whole point. You learn new moves on the mat, you get better at those moves, and then you're able to express those moves in a match, match or a tournament, Problem is, is if one, if we don't have enough sodium in our diet or it's not tracked or regulated and it's just fluctuating, we're going to have some weeks where we're great, some weeks where we're bad. So we want to make sure that we're constantly good and learning. Then what we want to avoid, and this is something else I go into with this, is a, an extreme weight cut and water cut because what are we going to do? We're going to get dehydrated and deplete sodium, whether we like it or not. And then we're not going to be able to express what we've learned because with most Brazilian Jiu-Jitsu matches and tournaments, you weigh in right before the match. So there's no like the bare knuckle fighting or the UFC you weigh in Friday, your match is Saturday. Mm. So what they do is an extreme weight cut the week of. They feel like shit when they step on that scale, but then they spend 24 hours replenishing water, carbohydrates, salt, all that stuff. The next day they feel great because they gain 10 pounds overnight. Totally. They replenish all that weight and hydration and sodium. They can express what they learned weeks and weeks and weeks of off-season. Brazilian Jiu-Jitsu, that might not be the case. If you weigh in and you're depleted because you did a weight cut, you can maybe drink a little bit of Gatorade and then you're right on the mat. You step on the scale and then you, you go, you know? Um, so point being is it's in general, sodium intake is going to help the neurological function of the brain and the nervous system, which we know is really, really important for not only skill acquisition and learning new skills, but also um, actually generating force and strength in the gym. Mm -hmm. um, so the big ones are going to be those. Obviously, the hydration key is going to be just make sure you avoid muscle cramps, keeping the muscle hydrated. Um, and you will quite literally see a boost in energy if you use salt pre-workout or intra-workout. Um, the other thing salt does, as well as caffeine and mixing carbohydrate sources, is increase uh, digestion absorption rate of carbohydrates. So, for example, I want to say the, and we could look this up really, but I want to say the average carbohydrate or glucose absorption rate is like uh, one gram per minute, I want to say. So it's like 60 grams per hour is like the higher rate. I, don't quote me on that. I haven't looked at this in a while. But essentially, if that's true... For example, if I'm doing a hour-long run and I want to constantly be fueling my body, I would need 60 grams of carbs, right? Because I have 60 minutes and I have 60 grams of carbs. One gram of carb per minute is like the absorption rate. Well, if we add fructose into that mix, we increase it. So now we can probably get like one and a half to two grams per minute because when we combine glucose and fructose, fruit and starch, we have two different carbohydrate sources. <clears throat> We're using different glucose transporters, and we can increase the rate of absorption. Now, if we add sodium to that mix, we actually increase it even more. And what, what we know as well is if we add caffeine to that mix, even more. So a lot of times with replenishing a UFC fighter to, to regain weight, and they're trying to do it fast and efficient, what they would do is, is have, like let's say, a gallon jug of water. They would put carbohydrates in there, uh, water, uh, fructose, so like orange juice or something, and then salt and caffeine. So now we have carbs, fruit, 
obviously water because you need to be able to drink it, um, sodium and caffeine, powder caffeine, all in one mixture. And we're absorb we're we're three we're speeding up glucose absorption by three to four times. So um, point being is is sodium can act as a way to increase glucose absorption in the cell. So this is why like I don't recommend this to anybody who's not training very rigorously and seriously, or is somebody who's more advanced, because if you're, if you're newer to training, you're going to gain, like, this isn't going to be a differentiator to make you gain more. You're new, like you're going to gain muscle at the rate you're gaining. But when you're an advanced lifter, you're training extremely long or hard. Um, you're trying to squeeze out every last percentage because you make gains way slower. Somebody like myself, I've been training for over a decade now. Um, and, or you're already pretty lean and therefore you could use everything you can take to maintain muscle on a cut or gain muscle um, without getting a bunch of fats. You're not going into a huge surplus to bulk. Have like an intra-workout carb source with salt in it. I don't put fruit in mine because I don't want to put juice in mine. But for example, I have a big like 60 liter shaker bottle, water, highly branched cyclic dextrin, and salt, the element. Um, and then I put essential amino acids in there, partially for flavor, partially because there's some research on aminos that might be beneficial. I don't put caffeine in there because I already have caffeine in my system um, and I don't put fruit. But still, I'm, I'm using that to keep hydration higher, mental focus and neurological capacity better, and increase my glucose absorption during that session. Um, again, advanced strategy, you, don't need, you shouldn't do this if you're just a brand new person. Yeah. It's just overwhelming. It's useless. But somebody like myself who wants to squeeze out all they can doesn't want to go into a surplus to build muscle but wouldn't mind putting on a little bit of muscle and strength. Perfect solution. Yeah. Um, so sodium serves a lot of purposes. There's also a lot of research with sodium improving your thyroid health because uh, high quality sodium has um, iodine in it. So there was like a actually like a drought of iodine. This is really weird, but a lot of foods have iodine removed from it. It's a long history story, but if you haven't read the book um, Salt Fix or The Salt Fix, it goes into all this. A really good book that talks all about sodium salt, why it's not a bad thing, especially if you're training hard, if you're an athlete, if you're healthy, if you're somebody who is sedentary and has uh, potential metabolic disorders or hypertension, high blood pressure, things like that, of course, don't fill your diet with a bunch of sodium. Um, but if you're training hard, you're an athlete or you're trying to lose weight, you shouldn't be avoiding salt if you're training, period. But one of the things that they know is that iodine improves the thyroid. And it's by no surprise, like there's not a lot of foods that are super high in iodine in the United States. It's also very common. It's like, on record, I think it's one in three or it's one in four women, doesn't count for men, but women, this study, uh, show uh, they have a dysfunctional thyroid, either hyper oh. or hypothyroidism. Um, and that's people that have been tested. So if one in four women who have been in the study on like a large scale have been tested, I got to imagine it's probably higher. So there's a lot of people who aren't losing weight. They don't know why they might have a thyroid dysfunction because it's a very, very common thing. Um, and it can happen easily if, if stress, chronic dieting, all those things are out of whack. Um, but iodine improves the thyroid health. It's one of the reasons why in Japan and some Asian countries, they have a low, uh, a low amount of thyroid dysfunction. Well, one of the highest iodine based foods is seaweed. Yeah. We don't eat seaweed over here very often, but they're constantly eating seaweed with sushi rolls. Um, those like seaweed chip things. Have you seen those actually really good, super salty. It's like a it's like a, I can really, imagine what it is. Yeah, it's kind of like a kale chip, but it's yeah, seaweed. Exactly. Um, seaweed salads, like it's very common over there. Yeah. And, and kelp and, and different fish, a lot of it is from there. In in United States stuff, we don't eat as much fish. We barely eat any seaweed whatsoever. And we have a lot of anti-salt foods and low salt this and low salt that. So we're basically like removing iodine out of our diets. Why I put iodized salt or sea salt with iodine on 
almost every meal I consume. Yeah. Except like my Greek yogurt and stuff because it would just taste like fucking shit. Yeah. I don't want to do that. Ruin the flavor. Um, but yeah, so salt is super important. I mean, it serves a lot of purposes. That was obviously a long-winded answer, but I think it's one of those ones where um, Mrs. Dash fucked it up for a lot of people. Do you remember Mrs. Dash? I still do. <laughs> um, I, mean, I still do know about yeah, Mrs. Dash. It's good, but uh, they were like the the originators of like... Fake salt? Yeah, and like yep. the no salt seasoning. And this led to like this whole idea that salt is bad because it causes high blood pressure issues and everybody's got high blood pressure now. And it's also one of those things where it's like, it's correlation, not causation. Throwing salt on a, somebody with high blood pressure, hypertension, it, it'll make it worse. But it's like saying, you know, somebody who is obese and has uh, insulin resistance, yeah, throwing a bunch of carbs at them would be a bad idea. But carbs didn't cause obesity. Insulin resistance didn't cause obesity. Obesity caused insulin resistance, mm-hmm. right? So um, they didn't get high blood pressure or hypertension on these things from eating much salt, they got it from being in a surplus, having an unhealthy lifestyle. And yeah. now salt is just going to add fuel to the fire. Totally. So, um, yeah, there's, there's a lot there, but I'm a huge fan of salt. Um, I tell. specifically if you want some good tasting salt, Johnny's. Yeah. Have you had Johnny's? I yes. hope so. Yes. <laughs> I hope so. Yeah. I, there's uh, I don't know if it was Shannon, but somebody, she's a Laurie's fan. And I think I introduced Johnny's to her, but Johnny's is from Tacoma. What's a Laurie's? Laurie's is just like, it's a seasoning. Oh. Salt. It's very similar to Johnny's. I don't like it as much. Yeah. Johnny's is more garlicky, yeah. which I like. But I Johnny's, Johnny's Factory, the original Johnny's Factory is in uh, is Tacoma. Didn't Port. know that. Yeah. But wow. Johnny's is the shit if you guys haven't had it. What is that chocolate factory next to the Tacoma Dome? Um, they make the Almond Roca. Yeah. It's, uh, yeah, you're right. Whoever makes almond roca. Is that what it's called? I mean, almond everybody roca? makes almond roca, I think. Isn't I think that a type of chocolate? I think so. I think that's yeah. like a flavor. It's 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 that, a that's like caramel. That's a flavor. Almond roca. Oh, right? it is? I think. Oh. Unless almond roca is the brand. No, 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 no. Almond roca is like a category of chocolate, I believe. Oh no. Maybe I'm an idiot. No. The it's the brand. Oh wait, no. The the company is called Brown and Haley. Yes. And they are but Fire. But they are the original. Oh, almond roca is a flavor. Yeah. yeah. But it says the original butter crunch toffee with almonds. That's what that flavor is. Yeah. Butter nut, butter crunch toffee with almonds. Brown and Haley? Brown and Haley. Yeah, that's it. So fucking good. Yeah. I don't think it's there anymore. After. Uh, are you sure? Uh, I mean. 1914 in Tacoma, Washington. Yeah, well, a lot of places aren't there anymore. I'm just saying. Anyway. Uh, I mean. Oh, they're in Fife now. Oh. Almond Roca Outlet Store. Oh, that's Outlet Store. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I don't know. I just think I drove by it going to the Tacoma Dome, and it's... It looks semi-deserted. Yeah. Yeah. Absolutely. But that's Tacoma. Yep. You know what I mean? Tacoma's pretty... Deserted. Yeah, it's still there. It's still open. Okay. It's open right now. Because <laughs> they got that little, like, uh, a little stand in front yep, of me. Yep, yep, yep. Yeah, they're still... Tacoma, it's just kind of run down over there. Yeah. You know what I mean? That factory district yep. area, like... Totally. But, Under those bra- uh, overpasses. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, it's, uh, what do they call it? It's called my aroma. Yeah. Just this stinks. Yeah. So bad over there. Y- if you know, you know. Yeah, exactly. All right, cool. It's all about sodium and salt. So uh, let's get to the next one here f- from Jen. It says, what recommendations do you, and considerations, what recommendations and considerations you make f- for your clients when going into knee surgery? Knee surgery, no weight bearing for eight weeks. I'd love to hear how you go about addressing this with a client. Calorie adjustments, ma- mindset focuses, and supplement recommendations. There's a lot of different kind of knee surgeries, though. Yeah. 
Um, yeah, I mean, so if, if we're talking eight weeks, I'm assuming she knows the exact, you know, yeah. surgery. Because it depends. Like, um, my knee surgery took me out for eight weeks. I have a client going through knee surgery right now, um, wrestling client, and she's going to be out for 12 weeks minimum. Different different knee injury. Way yep. worse than mine was. I had a meniscus tear. Uh, so you might have they, they might have something similar to that. So what my recommendations are during that time is first and foremost, find the best possible PT. And if you're their coach, a lot like ask them if you can help them do so, because the, the average person is going to and I don't want to like disrespect or talk shit on companies, but they're probably going to go to what their insurance company suggests first on the list. Mm-hmm. Right. Typically, what the insurance company suggests on the list first is the largest company with the most money that can pay them to be first on the list and be associated with them, which is typically going to be something like ATI, right? I don't want to, again, bash any specific company. Well, you just did. I did. But that's <laughs> a very large company, right? Yes. I didn't have, like, I, I had to go there because it was the only one that they would do, and I literally ended up paying out of pocket to go with somebody else. Um, my dad went there for his hip, and I was cringing because I was like, dude, let me help you. I'm not yeah. even a PT, and I can do better than what they're doing. Yeah. Because a lot of times what they do is they get people as interns or straight out of college. They give them a job. They give them a list, and these people just read off the list, do this band exercise, do this band exercise. There's no individualization, nothing. No, like, new advanced techniques of what science is showing us works. I went to a physical therapy who owned a fucking functional gym. It was a gym that had a PT in it, and this guy's a strength coach, and we're doing blood flow restriction. We're doing specific athletic work that he would use with NFL players. In fact, my surgeon worked on the Seahawks, and that's why I asked him for the people that they, he would send these people to, whether my insurance covered it or not, and that's how I found this guy. Um, much, much better. So help the person so they can find the right people and do exactly what the fuck the PT says, right? Like your job as a coach is to make sure that they be patient and slow down because the most important thing is doing the rehab. Yeah. Um, you'll be fine. So what I'm doing right now with my client going through this is I'm working with the PT. So the PT does all the lower body work with them um, three times a week. Um, he's he's up there. He works with, I want to say he said the sharks. We only had one call, but um, I'm not going to, which I believe San Jose Sharks uh, hockey team. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm doing upper body which literally the purpose here is to maintain a little strength and really just make sure she's doing something so she's like content, right? Which is what I did for a while too. Sat in an upright bench in the gym and did band pull-aparts, curls, overhead presses. 30 minutes, cool. Not enough to get me super sore, but enough to like feel my muscles and be like, I'm still in here. Tomorrow, I did the same thing, Yeah. right? Once I was able to crutch around a little bit more functionally, I could like crutch over to the dip bar, maybe do some dips, you know, maybe do some chin-ups. As long as I can lower myself onto one leg. Do whatever just to mentally keep somebody in the gym and maintain muscle, which literally is, as we talked about on the podcast, one-eighth of what you need to do to gain muscle, which means that if you had them doing 10 sets per week per muscle group, you could literally do a couple sets per week and they'd be fine. So if you consider doing curls, tricep pushdowns, maybe some push-ups on one leg, um, which is really easy, you just pull the one leg over, maybe some inverted rows, some military press, band pull parts, things that you know for sure they can do safely and control themselves down to, to like a seated position if they need to so they don't land on their leg, you would easily do a couple sets per muscle group per week without any question outside of your legs. Um, your legs should be getting done in the PT. I can't give specific advice for PT, but in my experience and what I would typically do based on research is balance work because you're going to lose a lot of stability. And that could be literally holding on to a bar and then just trying to balance on that leg. As soon as you have enough stability to do that, which is not week one, yeah. usually you got to get 
four to six weeks before they allow you to balance on that leg with support. Um, but doing like, this is where like the balance boards and stuff like that help because we're not doing, again, I'm not doing some LeBron James air squats on a BOSU ball, but I might be on a balance board literally just standing or touching my toes, right? Doing like a forward lean and touching the ground while bouncing on that because I want my knee to have instability so I can create stability. All these little muscles that stop working when you have that surgery, we're going to get them firing again and working. Um, blood flow restriction, walking, blood flow restriction, air squats, blood flow restriction, box squats with just body weight, blood flow restriction, leg extensions with an ankle weight on, like really, really easy stuff. Like I literally would sit on the, on a high bench to where my feet wouldn't touch the ground, which isn't that hard because I'm not that tall. Ankle weight on my ankle, blood flow restriction, cuff on, where would it be? Uh, my growing, like way up by my hip. And then I'm doing leg extensions and locking out top, squeezing my leg, just like a leg extension machine, but I'm using a two and a half to five pound ankle weight. Not that much weight at all, but the blood flow restriction just generates a whole bunch of blood flow into the quad so I can regain some muscle there. You can also do that with leg curls, laying down, stuff like that with the ankle weight. Um, But basically, non-weight-bearing exercises to pump blood into the muscle with very low load. But using blood flow restriction is great because you can pump so much blood in there. The muscle is getting treated almost as if it's doing heavy loads from a muscular perspective, not a neurological perspective. So doing blood flow restriction isn't going to make you super strong at the bench, but you can maintain or rebuild muscle tissue fairly easy with using that. So it's a good tactic. It's been researched a lot in the rehab world. Um, and then moving. I think one of the worst things they do for people who get surgeries, and this is really well known. And if you don't listen to, um, he's coming on the podcast in December. So we have it booked out a couple months from now, a few months from now. Um, but Dr. Aaron, uh, squat university, most people know him as that because he's got millions of followers, really, really well-known PT, um, sport physio for like Olympic lifters stuff. He talks a lot about this and it's really good, but a lot of upcoming and like really evidence-based physical therapists are talking about this too, is, uh, scratching the old rice protocol, rest, ice, compression, elevate and moving the fucking leg. So instead of putting ice on it, which numbs the pain and blunts inflammation, which mind you, the pain receptors are your way of knowing if you're healing. And two, so you kind of want to, as brutal as it sounds, you want to know when there's pain there because if you numb the pain, you don't know if you're doing something wrong. And then two, inflammation is being sent to the part of your body in order to naturally heal it. So if we remove inflammation by taking a ton of ibuprofen and icing it all the time, we're removing our body's natural ability to send blood and oxygen and and hydration to this tendon, ligament, joint, muscle to fucking heal it, which is the problem. It's why ice baths are not productive for muscle growth because your body is inflamed after a session of, of training for muscle growth. And if you jump in an ice bath, you blunt that inflammatory response and your body doesn't have to work to rebuild tissue. It just has this like, uh, what would be the right word? Uh, not, uh, exogenous but like synthetic a synthetic route of blunting the inflammation instead Mm. of a natural route of your body doing it for you so instead of that things like uh this sounds weird but like laying on the couch on your back like in a baby position and riding a bike right you're doing the movement of a bike so your your knees are going through 90 degree flexion and extension you're just not actually pedaling any weight or anything so there's no load bearing so you can go through that movement and you can get your joint moving in a full range of motion. Again, this is not something you do. Oh, I just had surgery yesterday. I'm going to go do this. Talk to your doctor first. Talk to your PT. But a good PT is going to have you doing these things because they want you to heal the right way, maintain muscle, rebuild strength, stuff like that, versus resting, icing, compressing, doing those things until you're just sitting around and not improving at all, right? Yeah. Um, so there's a lot I would do there. Now, I think 
nutrition, hydration, supplements, all those things are important. They're not nearly as important as this, all this stuff I just talked about. Not nearly as important because nutrition, hydration, and supplementation primarily act as a way to help recover from um, and perform movement. So we take supplements and eat food in order to have more energy um, and elasticity and lubrication in the joints and the muscles to train hard and then also to recover from the hard training. So Nutrition will help with what you're doing, but you're probably already on top of that if you're training a lot. So the only supplements I would probably not even add in, you probably should be taking these already, fish oil, whey protein, multivitamin, um, probably double down on protein because you want a higher protein intake. Glutamine not, might not be a bad issue, a bad idea. There is some research on like traumatic injuries, I believe, um, where people are taking glutamine in order to uh, burn victims, right? Okay. So like heal that kind of stuff. However, I don't think that's, I mean, I don't know of any research specifically talking about like ACL, meniscus, joint surgeries, just, I think it's literally just burn victims that they use as an example for like tissue repair. However, my, my imagination is if we have extreme levels of tissue repair beyond what we do in training and glutamine helped it, it might translate to other injuries as well. Collagen, same thing. Collagen is another one where, um, it's, it's going to help ligaments, tendons. It's not like a game changer for most people, but in an injury setting, why not throw it in, you know? Um, so just the basics, right? And then just, just a normal diet. Like I, I think maybe what I would say too is, is this is a situation where I might suggest a lower carb diet because your training is just going to be way lower. Yeah. Um, I don't know if I would go into a deficit though. So you have to be careful because if you drop carbs a bunch and you go into a deficit, then you could be, if you're under eating, you're not managing stress very well, which is the opposite of what you want to do when you're in a stressful situation of recovering from surgery. However, you can go a little bit less calories because you're moving less. So if you're consuming 2000 calories, you'll probably be fine on 1800. You're going to be in a smaller, you're going to be at a smaller maintenance, but if you drop your calories all the way to 1400 and go into a huge deficit, that's probably not going to help you heal faster. So I would put aesthetic goals to the side, just focus on maintenance and then having enough protein and then just the basic supplements that are going to help for sure recovery and stuff like that. Yeah. That's good. All right. Um, let's go to the next question from Jen. We got another one from Jen. When you have a client that uses, uh, the whoop and recovery is consistently low around 60% or lower. What are you looking at? Uh, there's multiple questions. Do you want to break it down or, uh, read it all because I think it'll all be kind says, of one simple. What are you looking at? She's consistent with her nutrition, isn't training, and overall sleep is about seven hours uh, a night. Life stress is not high. Her exercise recently has been modified and a little less intense due to, to a knee injury. Curious if you have been able to pinpoint a client's lower recovery. Might be same person. Probably, the knee yeah. yeah. I would venture out to say the knee injury is causing the HRV score to be low, plain and simple. Um if you look at when there's in, inflammation in the body, there's a recovery that needs the body. Your 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 score on a whoop band or an aura ring or a BioForce HRV, anything like that, is going to be low. So when I had clients using this, if they went out for a night of drinking but they felt fine, HRV sucked. If they had an injury, HRV tanks. Like they they hurt their low back in HRV tanks. If they had uh, a very emotionally taxed stressful day, HRV tanks. It's 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 responding to stress. So it's your stress score. So stress is multifaceted. So even if you're like, man, I'm managing all the stress in my life. Great. Awesome. But you also have a torn fucking labrum or torn meniscus or torn ACL, or you injured your lumbar spine. Like that's going to send a signal to your body that you're stressed. So 
plain and simple, I think that's what it is. Yeah. I wouldn't overlook this. And this is why at times I think that the aura ring, the HRV, I think it could be detrimental because for some people, like I had clients that would consistently come in the gym because we tested BioForce HRV from Joel Jameson when it first came out. And I had clients that came in the gym and it was like for weeks on end, I had to deload their training because they were always in the red with a shitty score. And it's not that there's something wrong with the HRV. It's that this person, like one I can personally think of was an executive at Boeing and he coached uh, the, the Seattle rugby team. And he was, in, uh, he was a part of the U.S. rugby team as well. So he had late night practices with his guys. He was coming to the gym. He also worked at as an executive at Boeing. He would come in in a nice ass suit every day and then change to train. He just lived a high stress lifestyle. Mm-hmm. So he came into the gym to relieve stress, right? He wasn't broken down. He wasn't going to get more hurt. His course all levels rubbish because that's his lifestyle. So him coming in, I could do two things. Like, hey, I'm never going to train you hard because you have a high st- stress lifestyle. You see your HRV, it kind of sucks. Or I can be like, you know what? Take that thing off. Let's train because I know that this is your outlet. And I want to give you that outlet because that's probably going to lower your stress. So I think you have to be knowledgeable enough as a coach to understand when these things are accurate or not. Um, there's also times when they're very accurate. I wear aura ring. I look at my score every single day. It's because I can manipulate my schedule, my stress level, my sleep to try to optimize it enough. And it's not going to stress me out. It's going to make me better. It's, I like the science. I like that stuff. It's just interpreting the person that's using it, you know. Um, and again, like, for example, um, when we went to Dallas or when we were at your wedding, I didn't wear the aura ring because it would show me a really shitty score because I was drinking every night and I was mm. not sleeping in my bed. It didn't matter if I got eight hours of sleep or I felt fine in the morning. I drank alcohol. I was out late. It's going to tank. I'd rather not see a number saying, hey, you, you should feel like shit right now because then it's going to make me feel like shit because I see the number and I like placebo myself into it kind of. Yeah. Um, I'm just not going to wear it. When I get back, I get a good night's sleep. I'm going to put it back on and start tracking again. So I'm back to my normal controlled lifestyle. So I think it just depends on the person. This person is going through a knee injury. That's why their score is going to tank. you got to wait till that's done to really take it seriously. For sure. All right. I think we got time for one more. We got one from Andre Corzome. What is a good number of exercises to do per workout when doing three sets for every each exercise? This is a good question. I also don't like this question. So, and I did this, nothing against you, Andre. I think this is a really good question. The reason I don't like this question is because I think that people put generic numbers out there as if there is a number of exercises you're supposed to do per session, right? It depends on what you're doing. Um, if you're doing a powerlifting program, you might do four exercises, right? If you count your warm up, maybe like six or seven, because you come in, maybe you do some band face pulls, some over and backs, you stretch your lats, you do some things, and then you start with a bench press, right? But if you're a power lifter, you might start with some speed reps on the bench. Then you might go do some like drop off sets and have like work up to like a one to three rep max. And then you might do a drop set after that for some volume. Well, I just did 12 sets of chest of, yeah. of bench. Then I might go, okay, now I'm going to do some heavy T-bar rows for four or five sets. And then I'm going to finish with some skull crushers um, and uh, like band pull aparts for three sets. Well, I've only done four exercises, but that probably took me an hour and a half. Right, because I did so many sets working up on the bench. I did multiple variations of bench, um, as far as intensity goes. Then I did a heavy row for five sets. Like the intensity is through the roof, so my volume's lower. A bodybuilding workout, I might do ten exercises because I might go bench press, and then uh, let's say I go barbell bench press, and then uh, for four sets, and then I go um, incline 
dumbbell bench press for three sets and chest flies for three sets. That's 10 sets for chest, which is great. Then I, maybe I do a military press for four sets. Um, that's shoulders. And then I do lateral raises for four sets. That's five. But now I'm going to finish with two different uh, tricep extension variations because it's a push day. Yeah. Right? So I did some chest, some shoulders, and some triceps. And I'm doing three to four sets on everything. I do three variations of chest, two to three of shoulders, and then two of triceps. Man, that's seven to eight exercises in a single session, right? Then I might do an upper body day where I'm doing back, triceps, biceps, shoulders, everything. So I might start with upper back and then go into bench and heavy row and then overhead press and heavy pull down. And then I might do some uh, like some isolation on my lats or upper back or something like that. And then I go into fucking arms. Um, now I'm at like nine or 10 exercises because yeah. it's an upper body day, but maybe I'm doing two to three sets of everything. So what's the magic number? Ugh, it depends. What's your goal? What's your training split? You know, if it's muscle growth, you might have more variations. It makes more sense. Um, if it's strength, you might have less variations because you have to spend more time doing one thing so you can work up to heavier loads and do a more specific movement pattern because that's specific to your strength goals. Um, whereas muscle growth, we need a wide range because we're trying to create balance. If it's fat loss, fuck, which one of those sounds more appealing to you? Let's do that and just focus on your diet, you know, mm-hmm. um, or a combination of those. Maybe you have a strength day and a hypertrophy day. Um, maybe it's a full body day. If it's a full body day, fuck, we could have 12 exercises with like two sets per exercise because we only have three days a week. So we want to touch a whole bunch of muscle groups throughout the day. Yeah. Um, God, it, it just depends on so much, you know? So I think there is no generic answer for that. And I think that's why I don't like, I, I like, actually, I do like the question because I think it's good for us to point that out. But I think it's, I hate that a lot of people will say, like there's infographics out there and it's like, Muscle growth, six exercises, four sets each. Strength, four exercises, six sets each. Mm. Fat loss, 20 exercises, two sets each. And it's like, that's all bullshit because you can do any of those and accomplish any of those goals. It's just depending on how you spend volume, intensity, and frequency. You can't categorize things into this channel, you Mm. know? Um, It's like saying fat loss, low-carb diet. It's like, no, you can't say that. You could, but you could also go high-carb, go moderate-carb, and go balance throughout the day, you know? Depends. Depends. Um, so there's no there's no specific answer to that. I think it, it just depends on the... And if you go into like the Taylor Trainer, for example, there's a whole bunch of different variations of programs and they all have different amounts of exercises per day. And they all have different amounts of sets per exercise, sets per day, per muscle, per everything because the volume, intensity, frequency, and exercise selection is dependent on the goal and the program that you're running. Yeah. So. In your life. Your schedule yeah, 100%. Yeah, how long can you even spend in the gym? Yeah. That's another good question. So it depends on a lot. Cool. All right. Well, that was the last question of the day. So everybody, um, go check out that Taylor Trainer. Yep. Check out the Taylor Trainer. Go to taylortrainer.net. Uh, and make sure if you want your question answered, hit the link in the description of this podcast. Ask Boom Boom and ask us something. We'll talk to you next time. Bye.